everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Mega Man 2, an action platformer title developed and published by Capcom for the Nintendo Famicom in Japan in 1988, with other regions following a year later in 1989. This is another special episode because it is a Patreon-sponsored episode. David Morton has sponsored this episode for all of us. Thank you, Dave, for the support and the sponsorship. Dave was gracious enough to record a message for all of us that talks about what Mega Man 2 means to him and why he has chosen to sponsor this episode. So, Dave, take it away. At this point, I can't add much else to the chorus of praise that surrounds such a game as Mega Man 2. I can only hope to add my personal perspective. I had a friend in 1989 who had an NES. This friend had quite a few games, but the one that hit me the hardest was Mega Man. The idea that you could find a level that fit your skill level made a young gamer of 5 years old intoxicated at the idea of actually finishing a game. The Yellow Devil eventually put an end to those ideas. Later that year, I too had my own NES. The story of how I got it is burned into my head, but it's another story for another time. With its arrival came the usual accompaniment of Mario and Duck Hunt, one of the many packages available at the time, but also a request to my parents to please, pretty, pretty, please, 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 I'll be so good for so long, please, 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 get me Mega Man for my new system. Unfortunately, they failed. They were not able to get me Mega Man. Instead, they had to settle for Mega Man 2. The rest is history. I never beat the game as a child, and even worse, I've never beaten the game as an adult either. I got to the last boss once, but ran out of bubble lead. The fact remains that it is still a masterclass of game design in a period where truly designed games were few and far between. Get to the end at all costs was the goal. Get the high score was the only point. Mega Man 2, along with the, all the other games in its mainline series, required and rewarded a plan of attack and understanding of its tools. And of those tools it hands you, its impeccable controls and crisp visual design are by far the most useful, allowing you to see, react to, and eventually defeat anything that comes your way. If for whatever reason you've missed out on Mega Man 2 or any other Mega Man game, it's time to hop on. If it makes you feel any better, I've never played a Castlevania, and it was a classic Gaming Today challenge for Hexic. There's so many classic games over the last 40, 50 years that it's really, really easy to miss even the big ones, so I want to personally assure you you will love Mega Man 2 no matter how long you've been playing games. Before I head out, I do have some thanks. I want to thank Tony for having the drive and passion to create and grow this community. I want to give some shout-outs to ISO, Rich Senewald, Left-Handed Guitarist, and so many others in the Discord for being just so down to chat about games and tech. And yes, I'm trying to steal Tony's tagline a little bit. And finally, of course, my mommy and daddy for buying me everything from Mega Man 2 to Spider-Man 2. Yes, my parents still buy me games. I will always be 11 years old to them. Thank you all. Talk to you all soon. Bye. This is Dave signing off. Thank you, Dave, for that message. And thank you once again for the support. This is episode number 65. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you. And there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, including our weekly gaming challenge. 
This past weekend's gaming challenge was all about catching up to ISO because ISO is our resident challenge expert and he was away for the weekend. So I thought this would be the perfect opportunity for others to climb up the leaderboard. And with that said, somehow ISO jacked into the matrix regardless of where he was and still got 20 points over the weekend. ISO, I've got to hand it to you. You are a machine. With that, he remains in first place with 312 points. Boogie Gnu is in second place with 147 points. I remain in third place with 99 points, with Rich Sennerwald close behind at 87 points. Left-handed guitarist has 35 points. That's good for fifth place. I Am The Dizzle is in sixth place with 24 points. By the way, I Am The Dizzle is Dave, who is sponsoring this episode, so thank you, Dave. And number seven is Public Self with 13 points. The only way to get involved and to get engaged with these challenges is to join the Discord. And you do not have to be the leader to actually win when our season comes to an end on January 7th. There will be a raffle prize in addition to the grand prize. So if that sounds like a fun time, come on out to our Discord and join in on the fun. I do also want to give a shout out for our December monthly challenge, which is an Olympic style kind of challenge where every week we put three competitive challenges out there and we try to get gold, silver and bronze right now. Not to toot my own horn, but I'm in the lead in that challenge. I got three gold the past week. ISO was able to tie with one of those gold. So ISO and I shared a gold medal. He also got a silver medal in one of the challenges. So if you want to join in on that, the winner of that one at the end of the month will receive 100 points outright. So once again, if that sounds fun, I definitely encourage you to join us all out on Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including a special channel out on Discord and a Patreon exclusive bi-weekly podcast, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are... ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or assign star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You owe it to yourself to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend that you play them. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly encourage you to give them a shot. Beyond our Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. 
They might have aged a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend this to the broad gaming population. They just are not quite there as far as what you would want to experience today. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Mega Man 2. is an action platformer title developed and published by Capcom for the Nintendo Famicom in Japan back in 1988, with other region ports following a year later in 1989. Before we can talk about Mega Man 2, we have to take a look at the birth of Mega Man himself, which means we've got to go back in time just a bit more to take a look at the birth of Capcom, the company that would eventually create the Mega Man series. Long-time listeners will recognize that this is not the first time we've discussed Capcom as a company, but just to provide a refresher. Capcom was originally founded in 1979 by a man named Kenzo Tsushimoto. Known as the IRM Corporation at the time of its inception, the company was created with the express purpose of focusing on the development and distribution of electronic game machines, which, as you might guess, included the creation of traditional stand-up arcade cabinets. Through a series of organizational changes, IRM Corporation would eventually morph and merge with one of its subsidiaries, Japan Capsule Computers Company, to create a new company in 1983. That new company would be named Capcom, a combination of the words capsule and computers, which was derived from what was effectively the new company's mission statement. According to Capcom, all of their releases were intended to be a capsule packed to the brim with gaming fun. And at the end of the day, all of their releases would run on a quote-unquote computer of sorts, hence the name Capcom. Shortly after its founding, Capcom would quickly find a footing in the arcade scene of the 80s, creating such hits as 1942, Commando, and Ghosts and Goblins. At the same time, Capcom recognized there was a rapidly expanding home console market that they believed could provide another revenue stream to complement their arcade line. Not to mention the home computer game industry, which was itself starting to become more popular across the world. So, Capcom decided to take a multi-pronged approach to expanding their business. One of their focus areas would remain arcades, where they already had a modicum of success and brand recognition. 
Another focus area would be the porting, and in some instances licensing, of those aforementioned arcade titles for use on home consoles and computers. And many of their biggest arcade hits would make their way to the Nintendo 8-bit Famicom and NES consoles. But there was also a third prong to their strategy, and that was the creation of original video games that would be designed from the ground up for the home market. While arcade titles and ports of those titles were proven commodities for the company, this new venture of developing titles for the considerably less powerful home console industry was a decidedly more risky proposition. In order to make sure the appropriate focus was given to these new home console titles, Capcom decided that it would bring in fresh talent rather than rely solely on current members of the staff. And here, two hires in particular would turn out to be instrumental in the creation of what would become Capcom's first non-port home title, Akira Kitamura and Keiji Inafune. Akira Kitamura would be hired first, and his early efforts were focused primarily on providing graphic design support for the company. Shortly after being hired, though, Kitamura would realize that while he enjoyed designing graphics and art, that wasn't his passion. He instead wanted to focus on the act of creating games more directly, meaning actually working on the mechanics, systems, and characters that provided the framework for a game, rather than focusing solely on the artwork that might accompany the marketing materials for a title. So, he requested and was granted a move to Capcom's planning team, where he began to learn how to design games. Kitamura treated every assignment as an opportunity to learn, and while he wouldn't be credited on a ton of titles around this time, he spent a significant amount of time working with various teams, playing games, and ultimately trying to figure out what made games tick, and how he could eventually design his own gaming experiences. Before he could do that, though, he had to get some additional hands-on experience. Kitamura's first game that he truly worked on was the NES port of Section Z, a Capcom arcade title that had been released in 1985. Section Z was a side-scrolling shooter designed by the legendary Takashi Nishiyama, who was the man who would eventually be responsible for conceptualizing the very first Street Fighter title. Back when Section Z came out, though, his biggest claim to fame had been the creation of the side-scrolling beat-em-up title Kung Fu Master, which itself was a fairly important title in the beat-em-up genre. Section Z would represent the continued evolution of Nishiyama's game design prowess, and would be well-received in arcades of the time catapulting to a top 10 sales spot shortly after its release. When the time came to port that title to the NES, several concessions had to be made in order to make the arcade title work on Nintendo's 8-bit hardware, and Kitamura would be part of the team that would be tasked with making that happen. Section Z's NES port would release in early 1987 to a strong critical response, and would, over time, become recognized as one of the better NES games released by many publications. With that successful port under his belt, a new opportunity arose. I mentioned that Capcom had been looking at how to enter the home console market with original titles, and shortly after the release of the Section Z NES port, the company decided that they were finally ready to move forward with that strategy. They wanted to create a brand new title exclusively for the Nintendo Famicom system. They didn't know what that title was going to be, but they knew they wanted it to be a success so they asked Takashi Nishiyama to build a team to begin creating this new game. Nishiyama recalled how successfully Section Z had been ported to the NES, so he decided that his first order of business as producer for the title would be to bring on Akira Kitamura as the game's director, representing a significant bump in responsibility for the relatively new hire. 
While many young game designers might have been intimidated with being asked to direct their first game, Kitamura simply got to work and began to brainstorm potential concepts and character designs for the new title. As Kitamura began to brainstorm ideas, he started to sketch out various concepts on paper, utilizing his prior art and graphics design experience to create characters that could, potentially, serve as the lead in his new game. While Kitamura would propose several designs, one in particular, a robotic humanoid with a multifunctional blaster for a hand that could gain new abilities as the player acquired skills throughout the game, was widely considered to be the best possibility to construct a game around. And so, with that initial design in place, Mighty Kid was born. Wait, that doesn't sound quite right. Oh right, it was actually Rainbow Battle Kid. No, wait, that's still not quite right. Was it Knuckle Kid? No, that's not it. Ah, you know what? In reality, that character, the robot with a blaster arm, would be named Rockman. Now, I know I was playing around a bit, but all those names, Mighty Kid, Knuckle Kid, and Rainbow Battle Kid, were all different names that the team proposed for this new character, before eventually settling on Rockman as its chosen moniker. And with the name decided, and the high-level character design completed, work began on actually creating Rockman for the Nintendo Famicom system. Kitamura, as the game's director, immediately shifted his focus to the design of the core gameplay mechanics, levels, and encounters, leaving his Rockman design as a pixely skeleton of the character he would eventually become. With Kitamura focused elsewhere, Capcom realized they needed to bring in someone else to actually flesh out the design of the Rockman character, which is where newly hired illustrator and artist Kiji Inafune comes into our story. Today, Kiji Inafune is one of the more recognized names in the game industry, having built a career that at this point spans decades. Back in 1987, though, Inafune had just joined the Capcom team, and one of his first assigned tasks after joining Rockman's team was to take Kitamura's original sketch design for the character and turn it into something more than just a single static pixel image. With that direction in place, Inafune began creating a number of additional sketches, pixel artwork, illustrations, animations, poses, color schemes, and various other art assets that would eventually result in a more refined Rockman design, which at its core featured a robot with a human face, a body made up of several shades of blue, and of course, a blaster in place of one of his hands. So at this point, Rockman as a character was becoming more well-defined. Rockman as a game, however, still needed to be designed, and the act of actually working through that design would fall to Kitamura and lead programmer Nobuyuki Matsushima. Before we continue, though, we need to take a bit of a diversion and talk about Matsushima and his programming style, and to do that, we need to discuss his background. Prior to joining Capcom, Matsushima had been a software developer in a number of different companies, most of which focused on industrial manufacturing. Specifically, Matsushima was one of the developers responsible for designing and coding software for industrial machinery. Think about things like gigantic factories and the huge machines that surround assembly lines. Matsushima was responsible for creating the software that would make those machines work. Unlike video games, where programming a piece of code is simply a way to display a sprite on the screen or a mechanism for reading input from a user, writing code for industrial machines is a much more intense endeavor because the level of precision in your code has to be exponentially more exact than what you typically see in a game. Let's say, as an example, that you have a bug in a video game. 
Sure, it might impact a player's ability to do something in that game, or it might make someone frustrated. But on a grander scale, that's not such a big deal. Make a mistake or introduce a bug in a piece of code designed for an industrial machine, and you might literally be talking life or death. There is no room for error in that field. Your code has to be exact. Now, imagine taking someone whose whole career was focused on creating perfect, resilient code and inject that person into the video game industry. You might think that would be a recipe for a bug-free, successful development effort. And honestly, you'd kind of be right. Matsushima's code was absolutely perfect, with nary a bug in sight. There was a side effect to that perfection, though. While his code might not have a single bug, it also wasn't particularly fast, because he built in so many error-checking and resolution routines that consoles of the time just weren't powerful enough to run that code without requiring some concessions. This would prove to be a bit of an issue for Kitamura, whose original concept for Rockman was designed around the concept of throwing tons of enemies at a player, requiring them to somehow defeat those enemies, only to encounter a new wave of never-ending bad guys shortly thereafter. The thing is, Matsushima's code simply couldn't handle a huge number of enemies at once, at least not on Nintendo's 8-bit Famicom. So Kitamura had to rethink his design, instead coming up with a concept that would end up being ingenious in its execution. Even early on in Kitamura's video game design career, he recognized that many games released in the early to mid-80s had what he considered a fatal design flaw. Anyone who's played games from around this time likely recognizes that the majority were incredibly challenging, especially in comparison to modern titles we've all become accustomed to today. It wasn't uncommon for consumers to buy a game that they would never beat, and the fact is, developers often design their titles to be brutally difficult, the thought being that the harder the game, the longer a gamer would end up playing the title. Older games may not have had tens of hours of story, but they often required multiple hours of practice before a player would become proficient enough to actually beat the game. Kitamura was not opposed to this difficulty, but he was opposed to the difficulty spikes that were prevalent in titles around this time. He argued that when a player experienced a game with a particularly challenging section, or specific encounter, that the perception of the player might become more negative, oftentimes overriding any positive feelings he or she may have had up to that point. Kitamura suggested that if you asked someone about a game they previously played, and their response was something like, I really hated level 6 because it was impossible then the designer had failed in their primary mission of making a memorable, fun experience for the player. Instead, and limited by Matsushima's slower code, Kitamura came up with an idea. Instead of creating encounters that ended on a negative note, meaning a super challenging enemy, what if he designed encounters that were the equivalent of a roller coaster, where the first couple enemies might be easy, followed by a more challenging foe, and then finally ending with an easier bad guy? In this way, the last thought in a player's mind would be success rather than obscene challenge, and he believed that that would make gamers enjoy the experience more. So, that's exactly how Kitamura would design the encounters and levels in Rockman, focused on mixing up various enemy types and difficulties to create a challenging but balanced experience, and hopefully, one that avoided the difficulty spikes that often made players throw their controllers in frustration. With that encounter design firmly in place, Kitamura next turned his attention to the overall structure of the game itself, 
And here, Rockman would introduce an innovation that had never been seen in a platform action title before. Rather than follow a linear set of levels from beginning to end, Kitamura suggested that the game should allow players to choose their own path through the title, presenting a level select to players where they could pick and choose what order to tackle the various levels and bosses based on the player's preference. Now, there was some strategy here as well, because one of the core tenets of Kitamura's design was that as Rockman would defeat the bosses of various stages, he would inherit that boss's special weapon, injecting new gameplay opportunities as a player progressed through the game. This then opened the door to implementing a rock-paper-scissors kind of design mechanic, where certain boss weapons would prove more effective against certain bosses than others. Meaning, while a player could technically take any path they wanted through the game, there would be a more optimal level sequence that, should the player figure out the appropriate weapon weaknesses of various bosses, would make the game decidedly easier. With the core game design in place, graphics complete, and music composed over a period of three months by in-house Capcom composer Minami Matsume, Rockman would finally be ready for release in late 1987. Initially, Capcom was planning on making Rockman a Japanese-exclusive title. Recall that Capcom had not previously created a game specifically for a home console. All of their home releases up to this point had been ports of their previously successful arcade titles, which they assumed would sell reasonably well. They did not, however, have the same hopes and expectations for Rockman. They were hoping to make some money, but they didn't expect it to be a hit, and they didn't really think a localized port outside of Japan would be worthwhile. Once Rockman was released, though, the game actually started to sell. Now, it didn't sell all that well, but it was selling well enough that Capcom decided to change their mind, and they did in fact approve a localized version to be released outside of Japan. There was just one issue. They wanted to accelerate that localization effort, which meant that the localization team was working under an incredibly compressed schedule. This most directly manifested itself in the NES version's cover art, which featured graphics that did not match the game's internal design at all, and was in fact voted by many critics and players as one of the worst box cover arts ever created for a video game. Cover art issues aside, there was one thing that had to be changed prior to Rockman's international launch, and that had to do with the name of the main character himself. In short, Capcom did not have any faith that gamers outside of Japan, and primarily children, would really enjoy playing a game called Rockman, with some in senior leadership positions even calling the name of the title horrible. Instead, Capcom decided to choose a name that they thought would be more appealing to a broader population, something that they felt would provide an over-the-top action platforming experience. As a result of that decision, Rockman would remain in Japan, what America and the rest of the world got, though, was the birth of Mega Man. Upon its release, Mega Man would receive mixed reviews, with some publications praising the game's gameplay, while others would criticize the title for being simply too difficult. Some individuals even suggested that Mega Man was the game that ushered in the era of Nintendo hard titles. While I'm not entirely sure that's 100% accurate, the fact is, Mega Man was certainly a challenging experience. Interestingly, despite all of its innovations and well-thought-out design elements, Mega Man would simply not sell all that well, and certainly wasn't nearly as popular as Capcom's arcade ports. 
The internal thought within Capcom was that Mega Man was likely not successful enough to warrant a sequel. So for a time, many individuals believed Mega Man would simply be a one-off title that exists, but would never amount to anything more than that singular effort. One person who didn't share that same belief was the game's director, Akira Kitamura. Actually, let me clarify. One person who had a vehemently opposed, incredibly vocal dissenting opinion, and in fact believed that Mega Man should 100% receive a sequel, was the game's director, Akira Kitamura, and he did not waste any time in letting others know about it. Shortly after Mega Man's release, Kitamura began lobbying for a sequel, suggesting that Mega Man's lack of sales was more a function of marketing as opposed to an issue with the game's design. Certainly in North America, he had a point, as like I mentioned, its cover art in particular was, to put it mildly, not great. So, Kitamura approached Capcom producer Takoro Fujiwara with his ideas for a second Mega Man game. Fujiwara was completely against the idea, and effectively said that there was no justification for another game in the Mega Man universe. Kitamura, however, was not dissuaded. So he decided to go above Fujiwara and pitched his idea directly to one of Capcom's vice presidents. As you might imagine, that was viewed as an offensive maneuver by Fujiwara, and it created a relatively hostile relationship between Fujiwara and Kitamura from this point forward. Kitamura, by the way, seemed to foster a relatively hostile relationship with pretty much almost anyone he worked with, owing largely to the fact that he was an intense workaholic who would literally sleep in his office for days at a time to make sure he didn't waste a single moment during the development of a title. This extreme work ethic flowed down to the rest of his team, as he expected a similar level of dedication from anyone who would work on one of his titles. He was also a perfectionist, which meant that despite everyone's best efforts, their work was often not considered good enough, which created an environment that, from my perspective, was volatile at best. Despite Kitamura's intensity, the members of his team, particularly mentee Kiji Inafune, believed that they learned vital skills from Kitamura that would ultimately help them succeed in their own respective careers. It may not have been the best environment for mental health, but it was a seemingly effective environment for delivering results. Anyway, mild tangent aside, Kitamura would not take no for an answer, and he was persistent enough in his lobbying that Capcom leadership eventually relented and approved the development of a Mega Man sequel, under one condition. The team that would create Mega Man's sequel had to work on other projects at the same time, the thought being that even if the new Mega Man game flopped, at least Capcom would get something worthwhile out of the effort. Kitamura, while not thrilled with the idea, agreed with the proposal. And with that, development on Mega Man 2 received approval to get underway. In an ironic twist of fate, Takoro Fujiwara, the person who Kitamura decided to ignore as he worked to get a Mega Man sequel approved, would be assigned as the producer for the new title. Despite not getting started off on the right foot, Kitamura would remain the director in Mega Man 2, and he would similarly work to bring back various members of the original Mega Man team to work on the sequel, including, most prominently, the artist who fleshed out Mega Man's original design, Keiji Inafune. With Kitamura, Inafune, and the rest of the Mega Man 2 team assigned to the title, development got started in earnest. And here, Capcom's conditional approval reared its head relatively quickly. Recall that Capcom's green light for Mega Man 2 required that the team work on other projects simultaneously during Mega Man 2's development. This translated into a situation where the development team would often have to dedicate their own free, unpaid time to the development of the title, which in many situations could have resulted in a subpar effort. 
The thing is, though, the team assigned to Mega Man 2 really believed in the title. And despite Capcom leadership not being particularly interested in a Mega Man sequel, the team truly believed they could take the framework created for the original title and, through hard work and dedication, create something that would be a dramatic improvement. Their goal, right out of the gate, was to prove Capcom leadership wrong, and they were going to work as hard as they could to make that happen. The good news for the team was that the work previously completed for the original Mega Man could be leveraged to help cut down on the development process. The general framework for the game, where players could select the order in which they tackle the various levels and Robot Master bosses, would be replicated for the sequel, with some enemy level and boss designs coming directly from previously discarded work from Mega Man 1. Because the NES cartridge had fairly significant storage limitations, a number of ideas for the first game ended up on the cutter room floor, but Mega Man 2 gave the team an opportunity to revisit those original ideas and implement them into the game. Interestingly, the team would also take inspiration from the fan community, and this was something that Kitamura himself wanted to integrate into the design process. Rather than rely solely on internally created bosses, Kitamura put out a call to the original game's fans, asking them to submit their own ideas for boss designs to be included in the game. The thought here was that engaging the community directly to allow them the opportunity to put their fingerprints on the game would help to hype the upcoming release more than the lackluster marketing efforts afforded to the original title. In the end, over 8,000 design ideas would be submitted to Capcom's team, some of which did in fact make their way into the final version of the game. As the design began to come together, which was in effect an evolution over Mega Man 1 as opposed to an entirely new thing, one other critique of the original title captured Kitamura's attention, and that was the complaint that the game was too challenging for the majority of gamers. Kitamura, like we mentioned, had intended the game to be designed as a challenging, albeit rewarding experience, and he took great effort to avoid any perceived difficulty spikes throughout the game. The thing is, though, many gamers still thought the first title was too difficult. So, Kitamura addressed those complaints in a couple of ways. For one, he and the team decided to add several traversal-based items into the game, designed to make moving through levels easier, and in some cases, dramatically reducing the difficulty of certain platforming sections. Another way Kitamura addressed the difficulty complaint was specific to the international release, and that was the inclusion of an easier difficulty setting, labeled Normal in North America. We'll talk more about those difficulty modes in a little bit, but for now, just recognize that there was a bit of a difference in difficulty settings between the Japanese version of the title and the version of the game that would be released internationally. Turning our attention to music, composer Takashi Tatishi would be assigned to work on the game's soundtrack, while Mega Man 1's original composer, Manami Mitsume, would only contribute a couple of pieces to the new game. Tatishi's background was particularly interesting, as unlike the majority of Capcom's composers who were all classically trained, Tatishi's prior musical experience was all from playing in bands. This would lead to some difficulty in coming up with the compositions for Mega Man 2, and there was a fair amount of back and forth between Tatishi and Kitamura until the right musical style and feel was captured. Eventually, though, the game's music would be finalized, the refined design and gameplay mechanics would be completed, and Mega Man 2, or more accurately, Rock Man 2, would release in Japan in 1988 with the international release of Mega Man 2 following a year later in 1989. Now, before we continue, I want to remind everyone that Mega Man 1 did not really sell all that well, and many individuals in Capcom didn't even want to create a sequel, thinking that it would be too much effort for too little gain. 
Well, it turns out that those individuals would end up being proven so, so wrong, as Mega Man 2 would become an absolute blockbuster release, selling one and a half million copies worldwide and garnering significant praise from gamers and critics alike. Many publications praised the game's graphics, gameplay, music, and multiple improvements over the original title, with some singling out the game's improved difficulty curve as being a major reason why the game was so popular. Mega Man 2 would be widely considered to be one of the best games of the year, and retrospective analysis by a number of critics has suggested that Mega Man 2 is in fact one of the best NES titles of all time, and many gamers consider the title to be one of the best games ever created, period. With Mega Man 2 a huge success, Capcom no longer questioned whether the Blue Bomber deserved the sequel treatment, and over the years that would follow, there would be a ton of Mega Man games and spin-offs created for pretty much every console platform in existence. At the time of this recording, over 75 different Mega Man titles would be released, representing one of the most prolific video game series and characters of all time. Beyond video games, Mega Man would appear in comics, television, and music, and there's even a Netflix adaptation currently being worked on which I've got to imagine will garner even more significant mainstream attention, assuming it eventually is completed. Mega Man would similarly influence countless games and developers, including shaping some of Capcom's future titles that would follow Mega Man's release. It is hard to imagine a world where Mega Man isn't a major part of gaming culture. And just think, if it weren't for Mega Man 2, and the efforts of the dedicated team that brought it to life, it's possible that Mega Man would have been a single release a true footnote in gaming history. Luckily for all of us, we don't have to worry about that hypothetical gaming landscape. Over time, the original team behind Mega Man and its sequel would all go off to work on various other titles, though one person in particular would stick around longer than others. That person was Keiji Inafune, who would progress from his work as a character artist to eventually take over production responsibility for the game series. Because of his continued work on the Mega Man series, as well as his original contributions to the first couple games, Inafune would come to be known over time as the father of Mega Man. In reality, that's not quite true. Mega Man was the result of a team of individuals, all of whom contributed different aspects to the character and game. With Mega Man 1, that team created a framework and character that they believed in. With the creation of Mega Man 2, the rest of the world joined in on that belief. And the rest, as they say is history. shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released oh geez i guess 35 years ago so mega man 2 is the second 
in the long-running Mega Man series, and in many ways stays very true to the formula originally set forth in the original Mega Man. So let's talk about that formula, because at the time of its release, it was a fairly unique way of designing an action platform experience. But first, let's talk about the more general aspects of the game. As an action platform title, you're tasked with controlling Mega Man, a robotic character who can utilize a number of different weapons to defeat enemies inhabiting a variety of different levels. At its core, the control mechanics of the game are simple. You move around levels, jump from platform to platform, and avoid, or destroy, enemies along the way. Each stage of the game follows a fairly traditional side-scrolling design framework, similar to other NES action platform titles of the time. Meaning, each level is split up into a number of different horizontal screens that scroll as you approach the edge of the screen, similar to the way Super Mario Bros. was originally designed, as opposed to the more single-screen kind of design like The Legend of Zelda was. As you move through a given level, you'll encounter a variety of different environments, sometimes varying wildly even within a single level, and will be attacked by a huge variety of different enemies. In order to defeat those enemies, you have a variety of weapons available at your disposal, and here is where the game demonstrates a unique design that differs fairly dramatically from other action titles. Whereas most action games might allow you to acquire and use different weapons as you progress through the game, in Mega Man, you begin the game with a single standard blaster attachment on your robotic arm, and as you beat different stages and their bosses, you acquire the weapons that those bosses previously used. In this way, you effectively have to earn your arsenal, rather than simply finding weapons scattered about in an environment. In an interesting twist, you actually have the option of selecting which stages you tackle in which order, at least for the first half of the game, which means that the order in which you acquire weapons can dramatically differ from one playthrough or player to the next. That being said, there are certain optimal paths through the game, because there are certain bosses that have unique weaknesses to certain other bosses' weapons, which makes those later fights dramatically easier than simply trying to attack using your default weapon. And actually, let's talk through each of the bosses and their weapons, because I truly believe this design is so unique and interesting that it warrants additional attention. When you're originally presented with the stage select at the beginning of the game, you have an option of selecting between one of eight stages. As a new player, you'd have no way of knowing which stage to select first, but once you become more familiar, you'll begin to learn which order and sequence makes more sense. So for this discussion, I'm going to present a possible sequence for tackling the bosses, though honestly, it is not required to follow the sequence, it simply makes later fights easier. I should also note that this is my preferred sequence for fighting through the bosses, and does not necessarily represent the ideal order for tackling them. So, let's start. First up is Metal Man, whose weapon shoots a spinning metal blade. Metal Man is pretty simple to defeat with just your default blaster attachment, and from my perspective is one of the easier bosses in the game. After grabbing Metal Man's weapon, I like to go to Bubble Man stage, which is a little bit more tricky, but the Bubble Man fight is actually super simple, as all you need to do is position yourself near Bubble Man and pelt him with your metal blades. Because Metal Man's weapon can be fired horizontally, vertically, and on a 45 degree angle, you can pretty easily shoot Bubble Man as he jumps around his stage, and if you get underneath him and fire straight up with your metal blade, you're going to make incredibly short work of him. After Bubble Man, I like going after Woodman. Now a word of note. According to everything I've read, Woodman is not weak to any of the weapons we've acquired so far. But from my perspective, 
the fight against Woodman itself is pretty simple, so I often just use my metal blades to attack him whenever he throws his leaf shield away from his body, which usually makes pretty short work of him. This may not be ideal from a true weakness perspective, but for some reason, I find this sequence to make sense in my brain. After getting Woodman's leaf shield, I like to go to Airman stage. Airman is weak to the leaf shield, though you do have to be a bit careful to avoid the flying tornadoes he throws at you, as well as to position yourself in such a way as to not take unnecessary damage from his attacks. The leaf shield does make short work of him though, so long as you have a clear line of sight, which really requires being behind him, as his tornadoes will deflect your leaves. And if you do that, you can kill him super quick. After getting Airman's weapons, I usually go to Crashman stage. Crashman jumps around like a crazy person, but because Airman's weapon rises diagonally when you shoot it and is super damaging to Crashman, you can often hit him in the air and take off huge chunks of hit points from a relatively safe position. After Crashman, I usually go to Flashman stage. For what it's worth, Flashman is probably the easiest boss in the game, and you can defeat him without using any additional weapons if you so desire. The most he does is freeze you in place for a few seconds, after which he shoots some projectiles that very rarely hit you, so he's really kind of a pushover. After Flashman, I usually hit up Quickman stage, who if you use Flashman's weapon, can be frozen in place, depleting 50% of his life bar without you having to do anything. After the freeze move ends, I typically just shoot him repeatedly with my normal blaster, which often defeats him without any sort of issue. And finally, after Quickman, I head over to Heatman stage. Heatman is weak to Bubbleman's Bubble Blast, which makes short work of him. And honestly, Heatman is not difficult to avoid and dodge his attacks. But for some reason, he can sometimes go absolutely crazy with some of his movements, which throws off my rhythm and can on occasion lead to a death. Heatman stage is also one of the trickier ones to try to complete without your supplemental movement-based items, which is why I usually wait until the end to tackle it. Speaking of supplemental movement-based items, as you make your way through the game and defeat various bosses, you will occasionally receive a non-combat-related item designed to improve your ability to traverse stages. There are three different types of these items. One is a rocket hover sled that can fly over long gaps or lava pits without issue, assuming you ride on it. Another movement-based item is a wall spider platform of sorts that effectively bounces along until it hits a wall, after which it scares upwards. And finally, a third movement item allows you to create floating platforms that you can effectively create stepping stones with to reach higher platforms and secrets. Between those movement-based items and the various boss weapons, you will have everything you need to beat the game. Regardless of how you're equipped, though, you may encounter certain situations where you lose some hit points, or you use too much of a given weapon and therefore have no power available to continue using it. Luckily, every enemy you defeat has a chance of dropping both small and large hit point replenishing items, as well as small and large energy replenishing items, in addition to, rarely, lives that you can pick up. The interesting thing here is that every time you move on from a given section of the screen, the enemies respawn, and they may or may not drop items for you to pick up and use. Because of this, there will likely be certain sections of some levels that you decide to effectively grind at, trying to either replenish your HP or your weapon's energy prior to moving on in a given level. The drop rate of these items is relatively high, so at least in my experience, it doesn't take long to replenish whichever resource you're trying to acquire. That being said, despite your best efforts, I am sure you will eventually die. Mega Man 2, unlike a lot of games considered difficult from the NES era, is actually pretty forgiving when it comes to player deaths. 
First of all, you have multiple lives to allow you to progress through a level, and each level has a series of invisible checkpoints that you can reach to continue a given level from a point beyond the opening of the stage. If you do lose all your lives, though, you have unlimited continues, which is much appreciated, though you do have to restart whatever stage you're currently on when you continue after losing all of your lives. And let's say you need to do something away from your console. While the game doesn't have a battery backup, it does have a password system that allows you to continue from whatever the last stage is that you managed to reach. So bottom line, despite the fact that the Mega Man series is often referenced as one of the more difficult series in gaming, there is a surprising amount of forgiveness here that makes the game, while challenging, infinitely more approachable than many other games released around this time. Speaking of difficulty, I feel the need to relay a personal story about Mega Man 2's difficulty settings. Like I mentioned earlier, when you start up Mega Man 2, you're presented with two options prior to starting a new playthrough. You can either select Normal Mode or Difficult Mode. As I believe I've talked about before, I'm typically the kind of person that wants to experience games the way developers intended the game to be experienced, which most of the time means selecting whatever normal or default difficulty settings there might be. So, when I started my latest playthrough, I selected the normal difficulty mode, thinking that that was effectively the default. The thing is, as I was playing through the game, I kept thinking to myself, wow, this game is pretty darn easy. I must be really getting good at playing these older games. Seriously, I legitimately thought that as a sort of internal monologue as I was playing the game. The thing is, though, I knew that the Mega Man series was often considered to be difficult, and what I was playing felt, well, it didn't feel easy, but it didn't really feel all that hard. So I decided to look up the differences between normal and difficult mode, just to make sure I wasn't missing something. Well, it turns out that in the original Japanese release, there was no normal or difficult mode, there was simply a single mode, which interestingly was the difficult mode in the North American version of the game. In other words, the Japanese version's default difficulty was the North American difficult mode, and the normal mode in the North American release was effectively an easier difficulty setting designed for international gamers, the thought internal to Capcom being that Japanese gamers were more skilled than other gamers around the world. So in order for other gamers to appreciate the game, they needed to be given something better tuned to their skill or more accurately, lack of skill. This irked me, probably more than it should have, so I decided to restart the game using the difficult difficulty setting, because I would have psychologically felt like I didn't really beat the game the way the developers originally intended had I kept the setting on normal mode. I will say, I did end up beating the game on the difficult setting, and it honestly wasn't all that more challenging than the normal mode. The major difference from my perspective is that in normal mode, you can use much less strategy when tackling bosses, as you can effectively face tank them, shoot them with your base weapon, and win over 50% of the time. On difficult difficulty, your damage output is reduced significantly enough that you need to actually play the encounters as intended, which does add a bit of difficulty to the experience, but also makes the game more engaging. Oh, and by the way, I should also mention that beating each of the bosses, however you end up doing that, is really only the first half of the game. The second half of the game introduces you to a series of totally different levels and totally different bosses as part of Dr. Wily's castle, including a boss gauntlet of sorts where you need to prove that you have the skills required to beat every single main boss in the game, one after another, without losing all of your lives. By the time you get to this point in the game, you will have most likely acquired all of the skill and knowledge needed to be successful, 
And I will admit that this might be one of the few boss combat kinds of experiences that I actually enjoyed playing through. I definitely appreciate the amount of content included in the game, and even with all of the extra levels and fights beyond the core game stages, the game never overstays its welcome. Overall, it's just a well-designed, engaging experience from beginning to end. Before we start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and sound, I do want to take a look at the back of the box, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, how they tried to appeal to the consumer to purchase their products. Back around this time, we didn't have YouTube to look up gameplay videos. We did have some magazines and we could look at reviews. But a lot of the times, the decision for whether to buy a game happened as we were standing in the store. And that decision was driven largely by how cool the box looked and what was said on the back of the box. So... For Mega Man 2, the back of the box says Mega Man 2. He's back, and this time the evil Dr. Wily, once the supreme power in the universe, has created even more sinister robots to mount his attack. But as Mega Man, you've also grown in power and ability. Can you save mankind from the evil desires of Dr. Wily? Each of the eight empires is ruled by a different super robot. You must defeat each enemy on his own turf, building up weapons as you go. Only after all are destroyed will you go head-on with the mastermind himself, the evil Dr. Wily. But be alert, Mega Man. Dr. Wily has powers his creations did not. Civilization relies on your skill and courage, confident that you, Mega Man, will stand tall in the end. And then there are a few screenshots showing the stage selection screen and a couple of screens from the individual stages. And there is also a message from Capcom from Captain Commando within Capcom himself. And it says, Captain Commando here. Look to me for up-to-date reports on all the exciting action games from Capcom. Until next time, Captain Commando. So I've got to say, I like the box. The Captain Commando thing, eh, whatever. That's <laughs> just a marketing ploy. But the rest of the box, the the way that the company described the game, the way Capcom described the game and the images, this definitely looked like something that would be a good time. And in fact, I did buy this game back when it was originally released, and I had a great time playing it. But we're not talking about that original time playing it. We're talking about playing it today. So let's talk about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. The graphics in Mega Man 2 are some of the highest quality, most diverse 8-bit graphics included in an NES game. Every aspect of the graphics design, imagery, environments, characters, and color palettes evoke the highest sense of nostalgia for anyone who has experienced any 8-bit styled game, and effectively represents one of the best representations of an 8-bit graphics-based title on any system, either modern or classic. The reason why I think the graphics are so good is simply the number of different environments, enemy types, and bosses that you encounter throughout the game. Mega Man 2 might not have the best graphics from a technical perspective, but I don't know that I've played many 8-bit titles where every single level feels unique and distinct. Most other 8-bit titles had some degree of reuse across levels. Think about a game like Ninja Gaiden, where you had a pretty sizable number of levels and areas within individual levels to explore. While the environmental diversity in that title was pretty darn good itself, there were some sections where you could sort of tell a given tile set was more of a palette swap as opposed to unique graphics. In Mega Man 2, 
you don't really have that. Or at least I never noticed any environment that felt like a copy-paste recolor of a different level. That being said, Mega Man himself does employ a number of palette swaps to represent the different weapons and items you pick up. So I'm not saying the concept of palette swapping to save on memory isn't used at all in the game. But outside of the Mega Man character, I'm not remembering any other spots where palette swapping was done in an obvious way. Everything else feels mostly unique. Definitely a commendable effort from the game's art team. Moving on to the sound and music, every musical track in the game matches perfectly with the action on the screen and the environments that you'll be navigating. There are a number of tracks here that will likely stay with you for some period of time after you turn the game off, though from my perspective, the most memorable tracks are likely those you experience as part of the introduction and opening of the game. Sitting here around a week after I beat the game, I can honestly say that I couldn't tell you what each individual stage sounded like, but I can confirm that the music all sounded great in the moment. Sound effects similarly are very high quality, and really do use the NES's sound capabilities in a way that enhances the experience of playing the game. I don't know that I'd call any individual effect truly memorable, but here again, everything works perfectly within the context of the game, and I legitimately have no complaints. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as Mega Man, the robotic creation of genius scientist Dr. Light. Originally created to be a lab assistant to both Dr. Light and his partner Dr. Wily, you were called upon to save the world when a number of robotic creatures malfunctioned, seemingly through Dr. Wily's meddling. Luckily, that event was quelled, and Mega Man returned home after putting those robotic menaces in their place. Now, though, a new threat looms. Dr. Wily, still intent on causing havoc, has created his own army of robotic minions to take the fight to Mega Man, as well as an extensive fortress which he now inhabits. It's up to Mega Man to once again enter the battle, defeat all of Dr. Wily's creations, and hopefully bring the evil mastermind to justice once and for all. I've got to say, the story actually works really well here. I love the concept of similar, albeit differently skilled combatants of sorts facing each other in one-on-one combat, and that is exactly what you get here with Mega Man and Dr. Wily's Robot Masters, as they're called. While the game would have still played as well, and been as impactful, even without this tidy narrative structure, I do appreciate the inclusion of the story here. This is a perfect example of a right-sized story for a particular type of game, and I personally think this is one of the better platformer backstories out of all of the games, both modern and classic, that I've played over the last few years. It fits perfectly within the theme of the game, and provides just enough motivation to explain why you're doing what you're doing, which I think is spot on. Moving on to the playability and controls, Mega Man 2 is, at its core, a relatively simple game to control, but there's also a surprising amount of depth that will only become apparent as you play the game more. If you've played other NES platform titles, you'll quickly become acclimated to the default control scheme, which follows a very traditional NES game design of moving around the screen using your control pad and jumping and shooting with the A and B buttons on your controller. And technically, you can progress through almost the entire game with just using those base controls. Actually, I take that back. The entire game is technically just those controls. 
It's the mechanics designed around those controls that add some diversity to the experience. Those mechanics, as you might have guessed, are the previously mentioned Robot Master weapons and the three movement items that you pick up throughout your adventure. There will be plenty of times where you may need to change the weapon you're using in order to take out a specific enemy, and doing that is a pretty straightforward setup of pause the game and select a new weapon or item from a list, which sort of acts like a weapon inventory. This all works really well, and if I were to throw any complaint at this aspect of the game, it'd be that the weapon and item inventory isn't really designed in a way to let you know which weapon does what. Every weapon in your inventory is represented by a single letter, and each item in your inventory is represented by a single number. Until you become familiar with what each weapon does and how it's represented in your inventory, you might end up picking an unintended weapon, using some of its energy before you realize that you picked the wrong weapon. I need to stress, this is not a huge deal, and you will pretty quickly learn what each weapon and item does. But if I had to nitpick, this is something that might introduce a bit of friction to the experience. Otherwise, though, the game controls pretty much perfectly, and I always felt like I had complete control over my character. Every death I experienced was my fault rather than the fault of the controls, and this is something that I deeply appreciate. I don't mind a difficult experience caused by a well-thought-out design, but I do have issues with difficulty caused by unresponsive or poor controls. Luckily, that does not apply here. Though, speaking of difficulty, I do have to mention that Mega Man 2 is surprisingly well-balanced, especially in comparison to many other NES games and their arbitrarily excessive difficulty levels. From my perspective, playing on difficult mode is the way to go, which, like we talked about, represents the default gameplay experience in the originally released Japanese version of the game. Normal mode is great for players who want a lighter, less stressful experience, but I honestly believe just about anyone will be able to beat difficult mode. You just need to devote some time to learning the game, its levels, and the various weapon strengths you'll encounter throughout the game. With that being said, difficulty in Mega Man 2 actually takes a few different forms. One is, of course, related to the encounter designs and the enemies you need to face. Overall, there is a great mix of easier enemies interspersed with more challenging bad guys, and this diversity makes each encounter a surprisingly fulfilling experience. You wouldn't think that individual encounters in a platforming level would have a lasting memory, but with Mega Man 2, there are definitely moments that remain etched in my brain. Boss fights, as you might expect, provide another layer of difficulty. Each boss fight has a number of unique pattern-based mechanics that you'll need to learn in order to win. Some of those mechanics are super simple, like Metal Man, who literally just shoots blades at you ad nauseum. Other boss fights are decidedly more complex, though all still boil down to recognizing a pattern, avoiding attacks, and getting in some hits whenever the opportunity presents itself. The other aspect of boss fights that adds a layer of strategy is the choice of which weapons to use on a given boss. Picking the right weapon for a boss can literally reduce the length of a battle to a couple seconds, which can reduce the difficulty dramatically. In this way, Mega Man 2 is almost a bit of a puzzle game in that you need to figure out which weapons are stronger against which enemies, and if you can figure that out, the game, even on difficult mode, becomes decidedly easier. 
The third aspect of difficulty in Mega Man 2 has to do with the platforming sections in the game, some of which can be a bit tricky. I will say that overall, the platforming felt great, and despite some sections that can cause a few deaths, most of the game provides a fairly straightforward platforming experience. I do have a couple of critiques, though, that we need to talk through. First, there are a few sections in the game where you may drop down and not necessarily know if you're dropping onto solid ground or a set of spike traps that will kill you immediately. Now, most of the time, you will have an opportunity to react before dying, so this isn't egregious at all, but it is something that can cause a bit of frustration. More of an issue, though, is Quick Man Stage, which uses a mechanic that I honestly thought was awesome in concept, but devilishly difficult to complete without using one of your special weapons. This is how it works. As you move through Quick Man Stage, you'll encounter a number of sections where lasers shoot out from a nearby wall and spread out across the screen. The first chunk of the level where this happens is actually almost perfect, as the speed of the lasers and the positioning of the obstacles in the game's environment is perfectly balanced so that you can avoid the laser fire without having to use any special tactics other than your own observation skills and reflexes. Later in the level, though, you'll encounter these lasers again. That laser barrage is much more difficult to navigate, and while I'm sure there are people out there who can complete the section without needing to use any special weapon or item, I had significant difficulty myself in getting through that part of the stage. Invariably, the lasers would move just a tad too quickly, or I might get hung up on a platform just a tad too long, which would ultimately lead to my immediate death. Luckily, the game does give you a counter, which is to use Flashman's weapon to stop time, which also stops the lasers from shooting out at you. Once you figure out the timing of when to use that time stop and still maintain enough energy to make it to the end of that section, you'll be all set. Learning how to do that, though, can be tricky and, interestingly, time-consuming, as every time you die, the individual energy values for each of your weapons do not replenish. And because Flashman's weapon constantly depletes your energy, there is a very real chance that you might get close to beating the laser obstacles, die near the end, and then have to go through the whole thing again. Only this time, you have no energy to actually use your time stop ability, which basically means you'll fail. The good news is that you can farm energy capsules, like I mentioned earlier, which can replenish your weapon's energy. The not-so-great news is that the drop rate for those energy refills can be hit or miss, and it can sometimes take a few minutes to fully replenish your weapon. It's not a huge deal, but it is something that can halt the pace of progress more than what you'll see throughout the rest of the game. Those minor critiques aside, Mega Man 2 remains an infinitely playable experience even today. It controls perfectly, it has a very well-balanced difficulty curve, and it even has a touch more strategy than what other similar titles can boast. It's a combination that I can both respect and appreciate. So overall, how did it feel to play Mega Man 2? Well, I gotta say, playing Mega Man 2 simply felt awesome. I loved almost every moment playing the game, aside from the minor frustrations with Quick Man Stage, which I do feel was tuned a bit too strictly from a timing perspective. Other than that, though, I loved playing through Mega Man 2, and I can see why many people, including some on our very own Discord server, feel like Mega Man 2 hasn't really aged at all. The reason they feel that way is because, quite simply, 
it hasn't. So our overall verdict on Mega Man 2, no suspense here. Mega Man 2 is undoubtedly a member of our pantheon of classic gaming. From my perspective, Mega Man 2 is a near-perfect action platforming experience, and I was constantly surprised at how well its controls, design, and overall gameplay held up to more modern titles. I liked the game so much that I'd even say it is one of the best action platform games ever created, which is saying something, considering how many titles exist in that gaming genre. Bottom line, if you've never played Mega Man 2 before, go off and play it. I can almost guarantee you'll enjoy it. If you have played Mega Man 2 before, go back and replay it, because it is absolutely as good as you remember. Put simply, Mega Man 2 is an outstanding title and a true classic, and is therefore immediately recognized as the newest member of our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Mega Man 2. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account, which is at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you to check it out. We also have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode, and actually speaking of Patreon, is going to be a little bit of a holiday gift of sorts, because I am going to be giving away a free Patreon episode for everyone to enjoy. So feel free to write in after you listen to that and let me know what you think. The episode I've chosen is actually a little bit different. The Patreon, just for anybody who may be unaware... We do all sorts of different shows for the Patreon episodes. We're up to around episode 12-ish now of the Patreon-exclusive podcast, and the episode that I chose is probably the most different out of all of them because it's almost like an alternate reality kind of thing. I'll give a little bit of an intro to the Patreon episode next week before actually just diving right into it just so that everybody has some understanding of what it is, but I thought... Because of how it's themed, and you'll see why once you listen to it next week, I figured this was a perfect opportunity to give something away and to show my appreciation for all of you for listening to this podcast. I truly do hope that you're all enjoying yourself. I know I have a blast every single week. I hope all of you are as well. Because you guys are likely listening to this on any number of podcast services and hopefully enjoying it, it would be great if you wouldn't mind leaving me a review. 
This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings. Though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is continuing to make the best possible podcast that I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you in order to make sure I don't have any gaps and I am delivering the content you want to listen to. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. I want to continue to deliver and make the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode, which, like I said, is a free Patreon episode for everyone. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>